Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. And uh, this morning I wanted to share with you a story um, that came from reading an uh, article. Um, and it was an article written by a guy named Tom Rayner. He's a church growth specialist and a researcher. And he did an informal Twitter poll of people asking them why they didn't go back to certain churches when they were out church shopping. You know, he didn't ask them, what drew you to church? He said, what were the things that drove you away? Why you didn't select a certain church? And people gave lots of different ideas, but one thing stood out above all the others, and it really amazed me when I read this article. The number one reason why people decided not to go back to a certain church was because of the meet and greet time. They didn't like, you know, we haven't been doing that much since the COVID, you know, but, you know, that was always the big thing you know, people, all churches would do. You get up, you know, meet, greet each other. And I thought, why in the world wouldn't people like that? I mean, to get up and shake hands, meet some people. And, uh, but, you know, they gave a lot of different reasons. And one of them was, you know, some people are germaphobes. I don't want to be touching other people. I don't want to catch something, you know. Uh, other people, they're, uh, they, they don't like to be forced to meet other people. You know? And others said they just didn't like to be bothered. When they go to church, they like to just sit back there and observe you know, and not be forced to do something. And uh, when I heard that, it reminded me of a friend of mine who told a story when he went back to visit his home church one time that he'd grown up and he went back with his parents. And when he was at church that day, he looked around and he made the comment to his mom. He says, boy, it looks like they've lost a lot of people. There's not very many people in here today. And his mom said, oh, no, that's not. She says, two weeks ago, the pastor gave a message on prayer, and at the end, he said, we're going to do something different today. We're going to practice what we preach. I want you all to get together in groups of four or five there in your pews before you leave and pray together. Well, they'd never done that before in that church. And so the next week, a bunch of people, she said, stayed home because he was afraid their pastor was going to make them pray again. And uh, one said to his dad, one guy he said I was talking to said that, I don't know why the pastor's making us pray. That's his job. Uh, And when I heard that, I I thought of a question that was put to me years ago when I was a student at the University of Iowa. I was a part of a group called the Navigators, a Christian campus group. And uh, one day we went down and visited with a guy on my floor named Steve Snyder. Steve Snyder had the distinction of being the first person I had ever met up to that time who had never been in church. He was, grown, he was raised in a totally secular family, so he'd never been there on Christmas, never on Easter, never been in church. And he asked me at one point, he says, what do you do in church? What do you do in church? And that's what I want to look at this morning. What do you do in church? What do we do in church? Is there something that God requires of us that we have to do to go to church? And uh, before we get into that, I'd like to read some scripture passages for us, uh, one from Matthew and one from Ephesians. If you have the ESV, it'll look a little bit different because I'm reading what's called the NASB. I'm an old guy, okay? When I became Christian 50 years ago, NASB was the big thing back then, so I still use that. So bear with me. Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And the son answered and said, I will, sir. But he did not go out. And he came to the second son and he said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterward he regretted it and he went. 
which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the latter. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax gatherers, the harlots, will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. And the second chapter of Ephesians, very familiar verses, uh, Ephesians verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus. How we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come together and worship and praise to your glorious name for all you've done for us. And we ask now that you would open our hearts, that your Spirit would speak to us the truth from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I became a Christian when I was a senior in high school. If you had uh, seen uh, Bill McGuire and his four sons going to uh, First Presbyterian Church in Davenport, Iowa growing up, you would have known that none of us wanted to be there. As we sat during worship services staring at our feet, not singing, mumbling through liturgies, you would know that we were dragged there by our mother. Uh, but that all changed when I became a senior in high school and I came to know Jesus. Because not only was I in church on Sunday morning, I went on Sunday night. I went to two Bible studies a week, and every night when I came home from school, I'd pull up my Bible because I was bound and determined to read through the whole Bible within one year. So my life changed. And I think it's because my mom noticed that change that she made a request to me. seems that the elders of the church at that time wanted to start what was called a junior deacons program. I don't know why they decided to do that. I don't know if they didn't have enough men to do all the things they wanted to do, but they wanted to have a junior deacons program to do visitation, primarily to shut-ins. Now, shut-ins is not a real common term we use these days. A shut-in is a person usually old, has a lot of health problems, doesn't get out of their house. And so they wanted, there were a lot of shut-ins in that church, older people, and they wanted us to meet them. So they thought, well, they'd get some of us younger kids. Well, you know, I was 18 at that time. My sister had just gone off to college and left the other VW bug open, so I know I had a car, I had some wheels, I'd go around and do things with my friend. And the idea of going around visiting a bunch of old people didn't exactly appeal to me. And uh, so when my mom asked me, I said, uh, no, no, Mom, I don't think I want to do that. I, I, no, Mom, I'm not going to do that. And I still remember that look of disappointment on her face when I walked out of the kitchen. Uh, but a friend of mine who went to that same church uh, they, uh, had heard about that, and he said to me one day, you know, you, that's something we could do together, you know. Maybe we should consider that, you know. And I said, oh, well, I guess we could. So I went back to the pastor, and I said, okay, sign me up for junior deacon." Well, then the next thing you know, he came back to me and said he'd just gotten a job stocking shelves at the grocery stores. I, I can't do it. So he backed out on me. So I, I was on my own. Now, this is 50 years ago, okay? No cell phones, no GPS, no nothing. So when I had to go visit these people, I had a list. I had a map of Davenport and street signs, okay? So I'm driving around looking this place, that place, going to people's houses, went to several nursing homes. And when I would go into some of these nursing homes, a lot of these people had dementia. So I'd walk in to see them, and they didn't even know I was there. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. As I say, I was a brand new Christian, and so I'd go in and I'd, I'd sit there for a while and maybe say a few things, and I'd go on to the next place. And, and the people who were with it enough couldn't figure out, what, what's this young kid coming in to see me for? And so it was, it was kind of awkward. Uh, and the, but the last place I went to uh, was this big mansion overlooking the 
Mississippi River Valley, you know, the, the early houses there in Davenport built these big mansions up there, and this was a big place, had a big circle drive that came up to it, and I, I, I thought maybe this was be the wrong place. I mean, what am I doing here? And I double-checked, and that was, that, was, that was the place. So I, I parked and went up and knocked on these big double doors, and this lady came and answered the door with a very stern face and said, may I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm here to see Mrs. Olga von Korff. And she said, may I inquire what your business is? And I said, well, I'm here from church. And she looked at me like that was the strangest thing she'd ever heard in her life. And she says, well, Mrs. von Korff is up on the third floor. And uh, so I went in and then up this big, broad staircase up to the second floor. And then to get up to the third floor, you had to go in, down the hallway into this recessed stairwell, really dark place. And I'm going up this stairwell. And all the while I'm thinking, what in the world is this place? I mean, it's, it's not an insane asylum. There's no bars on the doors or anything, but and I've seen some other name tags on some rooms. That, but what in the world is place? But the biggest thing that was going through my mind is, why am I doing this? Why in the world did I ever say, yes, I'd be this junior deacon? I don't even know what I'm doing. Why did I say yes to that? And when, when I did that, I became one with that son in the parable of the two sons. You know, I'm sure when he got out there into that vineyard, he was saying, why do I have to be out here? Why didn't God send, or why didn't Dad send one of the servants? Why does he send me? Why do I have to do this? And you know, that's the beauty of Jesus' parables because they touch us where we are in real life. How many of us have had those experiences where we go in and doing something we really don't want to do? Or our kids, you know, as us parents, you know, we've asked our kids and, you know, and they kind of, you know, stomp their feet and go ahead and do it. But that's the beauty of Jesus' parables, because they catch us where we are. And especially because of, you know, every parent in every culture wants to have an obedient child, right? Really? I mean, they want, we want them to grow up and listen to us and do what we say. And here Jesus asks the Pharisees, he says, which one did the will of the Father? And, and they say, well, the one who went out. And I think we would agree with that, right? We, that's, he's the one. But we really, as parents, we'd like the kid who says, you bet, Dad, you, Mom, I'll get, yes, Mom, I'll get out there and do it right away. But that's not what we get here. Again, Jesus is real. You know, that struggle that families have. But he, they illustrate things in terms of that parable because Jesus has been having an argument with the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, they're supposedly the spokespeople of God. And that son who says, I will, sir, I will go out, and he doesn't go out. There's another verse in Scripture that always kind of haunts me when I read it. It's Luke 6, 46. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord? Lord, and don't do what I say. Why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Well, when that son says, yes, sir, that's the same Greek word, curious. Yes, Lord, I'll go out, but he, he doesn't do it. But the other son does. You know, the thing I've always wondered about that is, why did he go out in the field? You know, he, he said, no, Dad, I'm not, I'm not going to go out in the vineyard. But yet it says he changed his mind and he went back out there. Well, there's an interesting play of words there in the Greek. The Greek there is metamilistai. It's sometimes tra uh, translated, he repented. Some translated, he regretted. Some say he just changed his mind. And all those are good representations of that word. Uh, it means basically to think about something and, and then change. But the great, when we think of repentance, the great word of repentance in the New Testament is metanoia. We say, repent and be baptized. Repent of your sins. That's metanoia. Metanoia means a total transformation of mind, of thinking. A 180 degree turn, think of the Apostle Paul persecuting the church, and he does a whole 180, and now here he is preaching Jesus. But that's not what metamilosai, that's thinking about it. That's the word that's used to describe Judas when he betrayed Jesus, and he decided to give the money back. 
He decided, well, yeah, he thought about it. Yeah, that wasn't such a good deal. But it didn't transform him, but he thought about it. So we can say, the first point here, he thought about it, and then he decided to go back out into the field. And, and that would be a good point to make for a sermon, right? We should think about things. We shouldn't make snap judgments and react emotionally. Think about things. So that's a good point. But, you know, some, have you ever heard someone say, you're overthinking it, you're philosophizing too much? Sometimes there can be just as much of a problem and even paralysis over here as we think and stew and fret trying to make a decision as there is problems over here making a snap decision. So it's just the right amount of thinking, the right amount of philosophizing. I don't know about you, I'm not really a big fan of philosophy, never took many courses in that, but I was listening to a podcast by Daniel Robinson, an emeritus professor from Georgetown University, talking about everyday philosophy. He says, we can't get away from philosophy. We're all philosophers because you have to do philosophy in life, especially if you're a parent, right? Because those little babies grow into toddlers. And what do toddlers say? Why? Why? I have a three-year-old grandson now, and boy, every other word is why. Why do I have to go to bed now? I'm not tired. I don't want to go to bed. Why can't I eat the whole box of cookies? I'm hungry and they taste good. Besides, Dad ate the whole last box of cookies. Why can't I eat all the cookies? Why? My daughters were great ones with the why questions when they were growing up, and I always had a standard answer for them when they would ask me why. I would say, why do anything? Why do anything? And they'd look at me and say, what does that mean? And I'd say, it means do what I say. It means I don't, I don't know why. It means I'm your dad, you do what I say, okay? But uh, little did I know that that statement, why do anything, is the ethos of our day. That's the thinking of our day. I was reading a book by Tim Keller lately where he was talking about how modern philosophers say that we're the first self-authorizing society in the world. Self-authorizing. What does he mean by that? That's why I don't like philosophy. They use all these big words that they talk about self-authorizing. Well, what they mean by that is for the whole history of humanity, when a society would decide what's right, what's wrong, what do I do, what I don't do, what are taboos, what are good things, well, they would look behind to what God or their gods or their culture has told them. So they look behind and say, yeah, that's what I've been taught. God says this, that's good, that's not so good. And that's how they knew. But now we live in a modern scientific age, okay? We live in the age which evolution says that we were were the result of a, bri a, a blind, undirected process. Man never had mankind in mind, but we just kind of showed up. So there's no God out there to tell us what's right and wrong. We have to decide ourselves. So when we try to decide what's right, what's wrong, there's nobody behind me. I'm alone in the universe. I make those decisions, okay? We're self-authorizing. We decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. Well, one of the first persons who really gave word to that was a woman named Elizabeth Anscombe. She was a philosopher at Oxford. In 1958, she wrote a famous um, essay called Modern Moral Philosophy. And what she said in that was, we should stop using the word ought. You know, you ought to do that. You ought not do that. And the reason why she said that is because, you know, if we live in a self-authorizing society where I decide what's right for me and you decide what's right for you, we have no common ground. I have no reason to say to you, well, you ought to do that, because I decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. And 20 years later, J.L. Mackey, who was the uh, head of the Department of Philosophy at Oxford, wrote a book called Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. 
inventing right and wrong. Because, again, as a self-authorizing society in this modern scientific world, there's no such thing as a verifiable scientific moral fact. Okay? So if we can't decide what a verifiable scientific moral fact is, we're on our own to make our own decisions. But a funny thing about that, at the end of his book, he said, well, this is how we know it is. There is no such God out there to tell us what's right or wrong. We decide it for ourselves. But he says societies function a whole lot better if people believe that there is. So that's how people ought to live. That's how society ought to live. So I write this book telling you that there's no such thing as that, but you shouldn't live that way. What a way to write a book. You know, you're, <laughs> don't, this, is, this is what I say, but don't live the way I say in the book. Well, we won't make that mistake here, okay? We believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he gave us this book, all scripture given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's what we believe. But that doesn't really answer my question. What do we do in church? What do you have to do in church? You know, we live in a busy society. We have a lot of responsibilities. We have different roles. We're husbands and wives, parents, children, students, teachers, employers, employees, neighbors, church members. And a lot of demands are put on us. People ask us to do a lot of things in life, don't they? We'd like you to help out over here. We'd like you to help out over there. Jim, go down to Humboldt and preach on Sunday. You get those kind of requests made of you, and sometimes you get a little bit irritated. You know what they ask me? I go home to tell my wife, you know what they want me to do now? You know what they ask me to do? How do I decide that I should do this or I shouldn't do that? I don't want to do that. Who has the right to bind my conscience to make me think I need to do something? One time I was wrestling with that was back in 1992 when my wife and I went to the evening program of uh, Vacation Bible School. We do it probably like a lot of other churches do, where usually the first week or two after school is out, the kids come in the morning and have Vacation Bible School. The end of the week on Friday, there's the program where the parents get to come and see what the kids have been doing all week. And that's what we did. My girls have been going to Bible school, so we went that, that Friday night. And I was kind of surprised that night. You know, usually in Bible school, they usually have it on a theme. You know, maybe an Old Testament theme, a New Testament theme, maybe a Western theme, maybe an ocean theme, something like that. Well, that year, our church had a farm theme, okay? So it was built around. They had a nice farm scene up there set up on the stage. And uh, so I was kind of surprised when my wife and I were sitting there in the audience and I saw Jim Morrow, who was a guy who, he, he, Jim and Diana had joined our church less than a year ago. He was a local banker. And he was up there as one of the characters, one of the farm characters. And uh, I was just kind of surprised that he was up there. And he played this uh, kind of hapless farmhand who couldn't do anything right. You know, he would make all these mistakes and do all these crazy things. And he was just hilarious. I just laughed and laughed watching him up there. And, uh, and afterwards, I went up to him and I slapped him on the back and I said, Jim, I didn't know that you were an actor. You did such a wonderful job up there. And he, and he said to me, well, don't, don't use my name and actor in the same sentence. He says, I'm no actor. He said, my, my kids were signed up for Bible school. My wife had signed up to be one of the volunteers. And I had some vacation coming. So I said, well, I might not make it a family affair. So I just walked out there and, and this is what they gave me. He said, not, not that I'm an actor. 
And uh, in fact, he pointed to me, he said, that's something you should do, McGuire. And I said, no, no, don't, don't, don't look at me. I, I would never do anything like that. Getting up in front of people, memorizing lines and doing stuff. No, uh, don't look at me. Well, the problem was there was another person who was standing over here said, yeah, that would be something good for you to do, McGuire. Well, later on in the year, when they were starting to think about that, this person said, well, have you been thinking more about helping out at Bible school? I said, no. I said, you know, God's got plenty of gifted people in this church that can do that. I'm, I'm not a stand-up person who's going to be up there helping a Bible school. And uh, as the time went on, I thought more and more about that. And, and a lot of that was for selfish reasons, okay? Vacation time is my time. And uh, I like to climb mountains in my spare time, so when I have a week of vacation, I go to Colorado and climb mountains. And the thought of taking a whole week off to stay there and help with vacation Bible school... I was thinking, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take my vacation time to do something I don't even know what to do. I don't know where your mind goes when you have these battles in your mind, but I, I, I was struggling back and forth with that. And then uh, as the time got closer by, I was feeling a little bit more convicted, and then I would tell myself, no, Jim, you're not going to do that. That's, you, you don't have any of those gifts to get up there and do those kind of things. You're just a yes man. You always say yes to everything, and you're not going to say yes to this. Well, June came, and where do you suppose I was? Standing up front at Bible school, playing a character. Only I got to go to the mountains anyway, because I was Otto the Mountain Man. Because the theme that year was, was a mountain camp, and uh, one of our uh, talented people at church had uh, made this beautiful snow-capped mountain backdrop with lush forests, and as Otto the Mountain Man, I led the kids up and down and singing and doing all these fun things, and then I got to wear my nice uh, bushy wool cap and, uh, and my mountaineering boots and carry my ice axe. And, and I wore a pair of genuine German lederhosen from, from Germany, and they were, uh, which were loaned to me by a guy named Ted Montgomery, who was from this church. Ted, uh, Ted had been here 40 years ago. Actually, I met a couple of people in between who, who, who remember Ted from 40 years ago. And uh, so anyway, I, the kids could march up and down. And I had a great time doing that. You know, it was really fun. I got to know so many kids doing that. And in fact, on that Sunday when I was uh, standing out in the fellowship hall, I felt this tug of my pants and I looked down and it's the three-year-old son of our pastor. And uh, he says, where you hat? Where you hat? Because <laughs> he was used to seeing me every day with my stocking cap there at, at uh, Bible school. And so it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience with, with those kids. And... Uh, and I actually had a good time doing it, believe it or not. You know, I left you in that hallway at the start of that home going to see Olga von Korff. And uh, uh, I didn't uh, turn around and run out. I actually did walk on down the hall uh, to where I saw the name on the wall and, uh, and not knowing what to expect in there. And uh, when I walked into the room of Mrs. Olga von Korff, what I found was this sprightly, very dignified, almost Victorian-looking woman in her late 80s. She had this high-neck uh, dress on, and she, as she sat in a chair, she holds her hand out to me, and she says, I'm Olga Bonkorf. You must be James. And she says, come in and sit down. And she says, I want you to know this is not a nursing home. And she went on to tell me about the history of this mansion, how uh, years ago it had been uh, open to widows there, and for many years widows had stayed in this this mansion, and she told me a lot of the history of ancient Davenport, well, ancient, I say, I mean, I'm sure it's ancient history to you people as old as I am, and this is stuff that happened 50 years before I was there, but 
But this woman was fascinating. I, mean, I just sat there spellbound listening to her. And, uh, and at one point she says, well, tell me about yourself, James. And so then I told her a little bit about my background. And then she, she looks at her watch. She says, well, our time is up. I must go to dinner now. She says, uh, when can I expect you again? And I said, uh, well, well, I don't know. I mean, they didn't tell us how often we're supposed to go meet people. I, I said, uh, next week? And she says, very good. Friday, Friday at 4 o'clock, I'll expect you. And so I went back the next Friday and, and uh, talked with her some more. And uh, just, just had a great time talking to this lady because she was so fascinating. And uh, I have to tell you, when I was in high school, I was a real loser with the ladies. I'd only had two dates in high school, and they were both one and out. You know, I'd go out with one date, and then that was it. They wouldn't want to go out with me again. But just prior to that, um, I'd asked this gal out, and she'd gone out with me two times. And uh, so I, I thought, you know, maybe my chances were improving out there, you know. But then the third time I asked her, she turned me down flat. And uh, I was just devastated. And, and senior prom was coming up. I'd never been to prom before, but I was thought this senior year would be my big chance, you know. Uh, but, well, anyway, I, so in talking with Mrs. Von Korff, I kind of told her about my situation. And I said, uh, so, uh, I don't know, do you think I should ask this girl again? I, I don't know if she would go out, or I don't really want to get my hopes dashed again. Then I remember she said to me, she says, well, I believe that a young lady is favorably disposed toward a gentleman's approaches, that she would ask, respond affirmatively to his uh, entreaties, which I took as a yes. And uh, so, uh, so I... Uh, so, 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 I, so I did. I, I decided I'd ask this girl to, to go to prom with me. And, uh, and I and asked her, and believe it or not, she said yes. She said yes, she would go to prom with me. And so I was so happy, boy. The next week I went back to Mrs. Von Korff, and I said, you won't believe it. She said, yes, she's going to go to prom with me. And Mrs. Von Korff said, well, lovely. That's marvelous. I'd love to meet her. Y you want to meet her? Uh, and I was thinking through my head, I'm gonna, I mean, I've only been on two dates with her. And she, I'm going to say, do you want to come meet this old lady? She, she, my, she's going to say, is that your grandmother? Well, no, no, she's not my grandmother. She's just some old lady I met. And this, she's going to think I'm a nut job. There goes prom, you know. Uh, but anyway, I, so I told her, I said, you know, well, you know, I've, through church I've been going to meet this old lady. And she said she'd kind of like <laughs> to meet you. You know, you know, if you, and she said, sure. She, she'd go do that. So anyway, she went over with me one Friday afternoon, and we sat down and visited with Mrs. Von Korff. We had a great time. I mean, she was just as fascinated with as Mrs. Von Korff was as I was. And, and, uh, and then she did go to prom with me, and she's still at my side 44 years later now, too. She's, she's got some responsibilities up at church today, so she couldn't come down here with me, my wife Beth. But the point is, you know, what originally I thought was, there's just no way, I'm not going to do that. I'm not fitted for that. God, don't ask me to do that. They were wonderful experiences, rewarding experiences. I've never met a, a person like Mrs. Olga von Korff. I'll never, never forget her. But, you know, that still doesn't answer the, the question, you know, what, what, what do you do in church? Do you have to do something in church? And as I've thought about that, uh, the answer is uh, no and yes. And that sounds like kind of a wishy-washy thing, saying, what do you mean, no and yes? But the reason I say that is based on that second verse we read, Ephesians uh, 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And as I said, I grew up in a, in a liberal Presbyterian church, never really learned much about the Bible. My concept of what 
faith and what Christianity was, was that Jesus lived an exemplary life and we should live a life trying to emulate Jesus and be as good as we can. And if we do enough good stuff that, that outweighs the bad stuff in here, then God will accept us into his kingdom. But if the, out, if the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff, well, then it's hasta luego, baby. You know, you're, you're toast. And that wasn't a very satisfying faith, let me tell you. And so when I heard that verse, it just turned on a light bulb in my It's not of works. Salvation is a gift of God's grace to us, not of works lest we should boast. So when we come into the door out here, we don't stand there and say, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? God doesn't say, have you done this? Have you done this? No. It's a free gift. So do you have to do something to come into church? Does God expect you? Does He require you to do something? It's a free gift. Maybe the only work is just reaching out and receiving it. But, so that in that sense, the answer is no. But the other part of that is yes, because it goes on to verse 10. It says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that he foreordained that we should walk in them. We've been created for good works. We are his workmanship. That In Greek, that term is poema, which we get the term poem from. We are literally God's poems as his creation. And the things that we do, the good works that he has created us for to do are our poems, the work that we do. So there are things in that sense that it is, yes, there is something that we do in church. But you know in a sense that we really don't do them ourselves. God changes us. <clears throat> God makes us different people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, they are a new creature. <clears throat> Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Colossians 1, 27, 28, to whom God will to make known the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. God's at work in us, changing us, making us different people. <clears throat> As I said at the start, when I was asked to be a junior deacon, I said, no, no, Mom, I'm not going to do that. When I was asked to help at Bible school, I said, no, no, I don't have those gifts. I can't do that. No, I'm not. I'm not going to help at Bible school. My Sunday school teacher one time was going to be gone in a few weeks. He asked me, he said, Jim, <clears throat> I'm going to be gone. Would you consider filling in to me for Sunday school class? No, I, I've, I've never led a Sunday school class. I don't know enough about the Bible. People ask questions. I won't know what to say. I'm, no, I'm not going to lead a Sunday school class. And a few years later, the pastor asked me, Jim, uh, would you consider going on the deacon board at church? Deacon? The whole Deacon? No, no, I don't want to be a deacon. I can't be a deacon. You, you need smart people. You need leaders. You don't need some dumb schmo like me. I, I can't be a deacon. No, I'm not going to be a deacon. A few years later, one of the pastors asked me, Jim, I'm going to be gone. Would you consider giving a message on a Sunday morning? <clears throat> Give a message? Give a message? You mean stand up there and talk to all those people? Are you crazy? No. I'm not going to give a message. But folks, 
It's not us doing it. You know, when we say, God comes along and says, Jim, if I help you, would you consider doing this? Would you consider doing this? And we say yes to God. Oh, what Jesus can do through us with his help. He can make us do things we would never thought possible. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How is God glorified by the things we do? You know, I read recently about a guy named Matthew Paris who is a newspaper editor of the London Times. He's a really hard-nosed, driving, demanding kind of a guy who is an atheist. And he was a part of a group that uh, did a trip to Africa to determine the needs there, to write a report about that. And so when he came back from that trip to Africa, he said, Africa is a very needy continent. There's a lot of needy people there. And they need our help. And he said, but they don't need us to throw more money at them. He says, what Africa really needs is more Christian missionaries. This is an atheist talking. More Christian missionaries. And people say, why? Why do you say that? He says, because what those people do makes a difference. What those Christian missionaries do changes people's lives. It changes their families. It changes their communities. It changes their nation. What he saw Christian missionaries do had a tremendous impact. God is glorified through those things. And another Englishman, A.N. Wilson, um, grew up in a uh, church home, and he went off to college at Oxford. And when he got to college, he studied all the different disciplines. He studied philosophy and science. And as he studied more and more, he became convinced of the truth of the things that he was taught, and he began to decide, well, all that stuff that I was taught as a kid is just a bunch of myths. And so he, he tossed his Christian faith and became a committed atheist. He counted among his friends Richard Dawkins, who, who wrote The God Delusion, and Christopher Hitchens, another great atheist. Those were his kind of friends. He wrote two books. He wrote one called God's Obituary, and a second book um, called Religion and Why We're Better Off Without It. Committed atheist. But he was a writer, and some of the things that he wrote were historical novels. And Later in life, he was writing a historical novel about the daughter of Richard Wagner. Richard Wagner was the great uh, German composer who wrote German opera. Uh, maybe you don't recognize him, but everybody's heard his song, The Ride of the Valkyries. That's Richard Wagner. Anyway, his daughter uh, was a great admirer of Hitler. And, uh, and Hitler was a great admirer of, of Wagner, so they got to be good friends. So he, so he wrote this novel about the relationship of those two. But he had to do a lot of research to do that, and so he was doing a lot of research about Germany in the 1930s, about Nazism and uh, Aryanism. Uh, he was struck by the fact that how did the German people, the smartest people in the world at the time, fall for such a nauseating, disgusting philosophy as Nazism and Aryanism? You know, in that time, in the 1930s, the German universities led the world. If you wanted to study the best in medicine, you went to Germany. If you wanted to study the best in physics, you went to Germany. Whatever your discipline was, you went to Germany. The greatest minds in the world were Germany. How could the greatest minds in the world fall for Nazism? 
And it just puzzled him. And he said, and where were the people who stood up? Why didn't people stand up? And what he found was that there were some people who stood up. People like Hans Oster, Karl Gerdler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And what he found out was these men who stood up to Hitler were invariably Christians. And they told Hitler, this is wrong. God says this is wrong. And it just amazed him to read what these men did, all of who gave their very lives for standing up was right. And he was one of these proponents of self-authorization. What's right and wrong, I decide. And and the more he thought about that, he thought, I don't think that's right. I think there has to be some ultimate arbiter of what's true and what's not true. And it began to work in his mind, and the next book that he wrote was Why I Believe Again. What he read about what those men did changed his life. Now you're thinking, well, yeah, that's real good. These are big people. They did all these great things. God's glorified by that, but, you know... Hey, I'm just a little bozo here in church. What do I do that glorifies God? What difference do I make? Well, there's a guy named Cody Huff out in Las Vegas, Nevada. He's an associate pastor there. You'd never believe he would end up as associate pastor because uh, Cody grew up in horrible circumstances. His mother was a drug addict. He never knew his father. So he grew up in a home where he was totally neglected. He got hooked on drugs at a young age. He spent time in teenage rehab facilities. He got out, was back on the streets of Las Vegas. He used to steal and rob to pay for his drug habit. So he ended up in prison. After several years in prison, he was released, went back to the streets of Las Vegas, and lived as a homeless man. And he was one of the worst of the worst as a homeless because other homeless people used to call him Stinky Cody. They wouldn't want to be even around him. You know, when they'd lay down on the street somewhere to lay at night, they'd say, oh, Cody, go over there, get out of here, you stink. Even the homeless people couldn't stand to be around him. He didn't like walking by windows of stores because he couldn't stand to look at himself because he was so disgusting, so dirty, such a reprobate, totally unlovable. Well, one day, one of the other homeless members or homeless people there on the street said, you know, hey, there's this church over here that you can go on Saturdays. Not only do you get a free breakfast, but you can have a shower too. And they said, you know, the good thing is, is you don't have to stick around and hear him preach Jesus at you. You can just go have breakfast, get your shower and get out of there. Well, that sounded good to Cody because he'd had enough people preaching in his face before. That's not something he was interested in. So he went over there that Saturday and uh, was uh, going to get the shower. So he got in line, and they give you a number, and you wait in line. So he was standing in, in line. And so and some of the guys are up here, and you know, they're bunching up this way to get away from him because he stinks so bad. And the ones behind him, they're all bunched way back here because <laughs> they don't want to be close to him. So here's, here's Cody standing all by himself waiting in the shower line. Well, a week or so before, a young gal named Michelle, who was new to the church, had been asking, uh, it, 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 you know, it kind of goes to the back, of the sanctuary where they have the sign-up sheets. So is there something that you know, I could volunteer to help out here at church? You know, I don't really, I'm kind of a new Christian. I don't really have a lot of skills. I mean, I can't sing, and you know, I don't really know the Bible very well. And they said, well, you know, we have the, the homeless ministry. You could sign up for that. And, and she said, okay, what do I do? They said, well, just show up, they said. So Michelle showed up that morning, and she saw Cody standing there. And she walked over, and she said, uh, you look like you could use a hug. Did you know Jesus loves you? 
And, and Cody said, oh, no, ma'am. No, I, no don't. you don't want to hug me. I've, I stink something awful. And she says, as I said, do you know Jesus loves you? And she hugged him. And Cody says, and I felt the warmth of that touch when I heard that word, Jesus loves you. She said, he said it was like a bolt of lightning went through my chest. God loves stinky, lousy, dirty me. For the first time that God could love him sunk into his mind. But the one thing, the overwhelming thing that was in his mind was, why did she do that? Why did that girl do that? How could she hug someone like me? Why did Michelle do that? Because that's what she was created to do. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What do you do in church? What poems are you creating for your Heavenly Father? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus, for our penalty that He paid on the cross. And we thank you that you've called us as your children and pray, Father, that we would open our hearts to your Spirit's work within us so that we can be your hands here on earth to touch hurting people. And we thank you for that privilege, Father, of serving you in the work of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.